Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. Hi, I'm Magdalena Morsi and I curate the culture programme at Second Home. In this episode, we have the Supreme Court lawyer, Neil Katyal, and filmmaker and comedian, Jad Apto, discussing what the future holds for Donald Trump and his followers. This comes in the aftermath of Trump's historic second impeachment trial. This event was in support of Second Home Hollywood members 826LA. They're a fantastic non-profit organisation that supports young students with their creative writing skills. Please do donate via the link in the description or directly at 826LA.org forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. Well, it, it seems weird that now, Neil, you have to write another book, The Other Case Against Donald Trump. You know, I, we actually thought about doing something. We just like it went so fast. The events happened on January 6th and then impeachment was just, you know, a couple of weeks later. So even as fast as my co-author and I write, we can't write that fast. Yeah, that's uh, something that I think people in a weird way predicted uh, I, I, I you know, think about what Adam Schiff said at the end of uh, the impeachment trial, which is basically if we don't impeach him, he will take it as a license to do whatever he wants to do. And that led to this. And then it seems like he got another license in, in, in many respects because he he, he, he was not found guilty. And uh, what do you think the, the value was of the second impeachment, knowing that the outcome was probably going to be this. Well, well, first of all, Judd, I just want to spend a moment just thanking uh, 826 for having us. Um, it's such a great organization in tutoring folks. And, you know, as a law professor, I see just how important good writing is and how much it's missing and not taught well in our schools. And so 826 just does such a good job um, in doing this. And so it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, and I thank Second Home as well for that. And, and Judd, I also just want to before we get started on our conversation, thank you for your voice over the last many years, but particularly in the last year when the country was coming apart and you stood for something and stood up. Um, and uh, I'm just so grateful as an American uh, to watch that. And um, so thank you. Um, and thank you for, uh, for making me understand what's going on. <laughs> um, so with respect to this, um, I don't think actually, you know, last year when we had the conversation, um, I said, I thought that if Trump got away with it, that uh, he'd do it again. Um, and sure enough, he did that and in many ways worse on January 6th. But I don't think you can take the same lesson from the impeachment this time around. Um, and I guess I'd point to four things. One is first, just the fact that a lot of Americans saw the trial and it was a pretty spellbinding presentation from the House managers um, and uh, compared to a really dismal halting one by the by the Trump lawyers, um, which I, I don't think is the lawyer's fault. I, I think it's that Trump just had a really hard position to defend. 
So one thing is just the facts were more easily available and understandable for the American public, video evidence as opposed to some secret classified transcript or something like that. The second is seven senators, Republican senators voted to convict him, um, including like people like Senator Burr of North Carolina, who's no like lefty, you know, it's not like Mitt Romney is considered lefty. Um, you know, this is not what happened. Um, and by far the most bipartisan impeachment vote in United States history. Um, and then third, yes, there were 43 people who voted to acquit him, um, but on a technicality, really, just on the idea that a former president couldn't be convicted of impeachment, and we can get into whether or not that was right or wrong, but it wasn't an acquittal on the facts. And that brings me to the last point, which is the exclamation point, which is what Mitch McConnell said at the end, saying Trump was morally responsible for the January 6th insurrection, even though he voted to acquit him. And I'm certainly like the last person to be a fan of Mitch McConnell. But I think those four things taken together make it very different than the last impeachment in which Trump could at least try and claim uh, some sort of victory. Here, you know, that victory is on a squeaked by on a technicality. Yeah, well, I, I think that we all also hope that there's a lot of uh, further investigations about really how this uh, went down. I, I mean, for me, I was watching the news the week before January 6th, and every day they were talking about proud boys on the street beating up strangers. And I thought, wow, this is going to be pretty crazy on January 6th. I assume they're going to have a lot of security when you have a lot of people from around the country uh, who, who might cause a problem. And we all sit around and go, Somebody said, let's not have a lot of security on the street. And, you know, what you keep hearing is, oh, they, they didn't want to look like they did during Black Lives Matter. But but obviously somebody said, these are our people. Don't do it. Knowing that it was going to get nuts. And, and, and what are you just hearing in uh, the world uh, you travel in about what we think actually happened in terms of the belief that something uh you know, potentially violence or more aggressive was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, don't underestimate the incompetence of the Trump administration is what I'd say, Judd. It could be deliberate or it could just be that they're incompetent um, at, you know, security just as the way they are with, you know, have been with everything else. So, I mean, the one thing I do take from this, though, and particularly as we think about it after the trial is, I never want to hear another word from a Republican about blue lives matter and, you know, law and order and all that nonsense. Because if you believe that for one second, I mean, forget about maybe what happened up until the attack on January 6th. But during the attack on January 6th, when those cops are under assault, our Capitol Hill police and they do nothing, um, that is unforgivable. Um you know, and I, I don't talk, I can't really talk about this too much publicly, but I'm the special prosecutor in the George Floyd case, and we're prosecuting the four cops. And one of the things that's said constantly is against Democrats is, you know, you don't care about the cops, you just, you know, care about, you know, other stuff and so on. And I think an event like this just really demonstrates that, that you know, those attacks in general are, are really unfortunate um, and political and don't have... Uh, substance behind them. Well, also, two police officers committed suicide in the weeks that followed that event, and uh, not a lot has been written 
about the circumstances of that. But it, it really was a terribly violent event. And you would hope that all politicians would be furious about it uh, and not trying to redefine it as something that actually wasn't that big a deal. Uh, you know, we saw what happened in Michigan where people stormed the Capitol there. You know, clearly the government knew that when a lot of people are, are going to show up and the president says, hey, why don't you guys all go to the Capitol? Uh, what that means. And it's interesting that this weekend, I believe Donald Trump, uh, is it a week from now, is going to speak at uh, a Republican conference. So he's already fully allowed back into that world in what they see as a very legitimate way, even after all of this. Yeah, I find it, you know, astounding. You know, I thought at at the events of January 6th, I thought finally people would look in the mirror and realize, you know, what have I been standing for? Okay, I'm, you know, I, they look into the abyss and they see the mistake. I thought even like Lindsey Graham, when he said, you know, I'm out on the floor of the Senate. I thought that that was the moment when things would change and people would understand this. And, you know, I do think that it did change for a significant percentage of the population, but unfortunately not for at least some of the people um, in Washington, D.C. Um, and some of the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to be political about this. I think you can have whatever view you want about the economy, tax cuts, whatever. But it's not, I think, too much to ask that you don't go and honor and offer up for a speech a guy who, you know, helped lead an insurrection against the United States. And, you know, it wasn't just an attack on any day of the Capitol. It was an attack on January 6th, which is, which is like their most sacred day. It's not like they were voting on like what national chocolate day should be or something like that. They were performing their, their peaceful transition of power. They were counting the votes. And that's what Trump sent his mob to attack. Um, you know, it's it's Russian, basically. It's not American. And, and, and didn't Donald Trump change the day that they would show up, that they were going to show up late in January. Um, I, I didn't know about that, um, but um, but I do know that, you know, he said, come on January 6th, it'll be wild yeah. uh, and stuff like that. And one of the things that I just, you know, I thought the house managers did such a good job. But one thing I think didn't totally permeate is the point that, look, you can read some of these Trump statements about got a fight and, you know, wild in isolation. And if they were said by, you know, you or me or like a normal person, you could read them the other way, you know, that you're, yeah. but the problem is they're coming from Trump against a long backdrop of this stuff and including warnings from like the Georgia official on December 1st, when he said on the camera, Gabe Sterling, he went to the cameras and said, Mr. President, stop this, cut it out. Otherwise someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get killed. And after all that Trump, continues and says the same garbage and nonsense. And, you know, I guess one question I have for you, because you think so much about, um, you know, the way in which images move people, the way in which narratives are constructed. How do you think Trump got away with selling this big lie through December, through January 6th, even today, you know, like some of that, like one of the top House Republicans went on, the Sunday shows and refusing to admit that Trump lost the election. So yeah. I don't get it. 
Well, it's funny because for many years, you know, I had heard they were, you know, they were switching the voting machines from paper ballots to, you know, uh, through some sort of computer system or electronic system. And I certainly thought, wow, that sounds like trouble. Like, why would you take something so simple that just works and, you know, put it on the internet or put it on computers? And so maybe I have a conspiratorial thought in my head, right? Who's making these machines? Uh, who controls the software? But in, you know, previous elections, you know, we all said, I guess I'm going to trust the system in some way. There are people paid to make sure nothing bad is happening. Uh, so I, I see that seed for people where when they lose, they, they think something must, you know, be going on. But what I find most fascinating in terms of, you know, the cultish, aspect of this is that Donald Trump is someone that so clearly doesn't have anyone's back. So what I find fascinating is anyone who looks at Donald Trump and says, he's worried about me. He cares about me because there's never been a person who, who's ever been more transparent in their narcissism and their selfishness. And yet 75 million people thought, I want more of this. You know, this is great. Uh, and I do wonder what, what do they think he provided for them? He, clearly didn't handle the pandemic well. He was just printing money in terms of the economy and the defense department. Uh, certainly we were gonna have you know, all sorts of problems. We didn't get infrastructure. He, he didn't you know, solve most of the problems that he said he was gonna solve. He didn't get the wall. He didn't get the things that they wanted. What he really got was a tax break for himself. He took care of all of his friends in, in certain industries, the real estate industry, and that's who paid to get him in office. And I think uh, that's what I find most troubling is Donald Trump could not be for a, you know, a $15 minimum wage and the people that suffer go, yeah, let's not have a minimum wage. Yeah. A hundred percent. I agree with you. Like if you're a poor working class person, like, and you're voting for Trump, you'd think, you know, why, what do you get out of it? It makes no sense. The, the one way in which it does make some sense though, is if we think about race, because the one thing Trump was able to do is to say to those people, whatever you got, you know, African-Americans are going to get worse. And, you know, the Democrats are going to give them extra. They're going to give them like preference or whatever. So, you know, I, I think that the race side, uh, even though sometimes it was subtle and sometimes it was overt, is the one thing Trump was able to offer to, um, to, to these folks. Um, and, and I don't think they understand that. Uh, you know, let's say uh, hedge fund managers, right? The the tax laws are built for them to not pay much taxes on the billions that they make. Uh, so somebody, uh, I, I don't want to get the name wrong. You may know who, who got in trouble in the last few weeks uh, because he had hired Jeffrey Epstein in recent years to help him avoid taxes uh, and, and paid Jeffrey Epstein $150 million dollars to help him avoid taxes. So how much money did he save that it was worth $150 million to a pedophile to give him tax advice? And that's, you know, that money comes out of people who are struggling. And so anytime people are mad about uh, that, maybe uh, someone from another country who isn't, uh, you know, a legal citizen gets a, a social service, uh, that money is nothing compared to what money we're giving to the richest people in our society. 
A hundred percent. And that's where Trump did, you know, people say Trump was stupid and stuff. No, in some ways he was an evil genius. I mean, because he understood you can give these huge giveaways to his pals and people wouldn't really understand it. It's really hard to understand what a carried interest loophole is on a hedge fund or something like that. But race baiting is really cheap. It's really yeah. easy to go and just say, you know, law and order and, you know, it's Blue primal. Lives Matter it's and primal. all the other nonsense. That's sure. cheap. Um, doesn't cost him anything and doesn't even require any competence to execute a government program. All he has to do is just say it. Well, I look at it like uh, how I see uh, you know, what's happening in the entertainment industry in terms of diversity. So you have an industry that is you know, primarily white. Uh, writers on television shows you know, forever have been uh, you know, almost completely white. And in the last 10 years or so, uh, things have begun to change. And every once in a while, there's a rule that they have to change. So they'll say, you have to have half of your staff be diverse in some way. Now, when that happens, there are a lot of writers, uh, white writers who suddenly are not getting as much work and maybe some people that aren't getting work. But you've had a system that has excluded everybody but white people for 50 years. And so when someone says, yeah, we have to stop that and we have to make a choice to, to get more people in the pipeline and to change things, the people that start struggling, they might fly into a rage and say, this is unfair. Uh, or they might go, you know what? These people have gotten screwed forever. And obviously we need to uh, make choices that are, that are clear choices that will change the system. And there are people who, you know, I think in the whole country are like, I don't want it to change because it benefits me. And I'm happy to take based on the exclusion of others or based on taking advantage of them for their work for hundreds of years. And, and I think that's the debate that we're having. Are you comfortable with redlining and all the ways that people don't get a, the right education or the right opportunities? Or do you think, yeah, I'll take a little bit of a hit to make this country work better? Yeah, that's beautifully said. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I defend, I'm defending Yale and their affirmative action challenges um, in which people make the same kinds of arguments. Uh, and fortunately, in the Trump administration sued Yale. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, the Biden administration just dropped the lawsuit. But one of the things I've realized is, yes, you know, part of the attitude, you know, among people has to be, you know, there's been historic injustices and we need to somehow make it up. But another part of this story is also like, you know, I even I tell myself this, you know, uh, maybe I got this job. Maybe I'm here precisely because other people felt discrimination. I didn't face true competition. So, you know, it's it's um, it's in part about trying to make a more just society going forward. But it's also like the progress that we've all had is in some ways the benefit of certain structural forces that were in our favor. And if you don't have those forces in your favor, as you know, African-Americans haven't, whether it be in Hollywood or in the professional law, um, you know, got to think twice about it. Well, it, you know, it takes real effort. For instance, just to give people insight in how it works, you might be making a television show and the studio might say, uh, you're hiring, uh, you have 10 directing slots this year and you need to have a certain amount of those slots be African-American. And what a lot of shows will do is all hire the same person, right? They'll all hire, like they'll, they'll be someone who's fantastic and that's who they hire as opposed to, you know, making a choice. Let's give someone a break. 
let's 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 get a first timer. Let's get somebody who had an incredible uh, short film or something and get more people approved. And that takes people caring to do that. And for a long time, there was no energy in that direction. There's a lot more energy now. I, I can't say it's enough energy, but it requires that or you will just hire the same people over and over again. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that our industry is changing, but I do also feel the resistance, the energy around it, because it is a rejiggering of what people are used to. But I look at my career and I think, you know, I'm a white Jewish kid from Long Island and I showed up at a comedy club owned by a white Jewish guy and he liked me probably because I seemed like him. And then I met a producer who was a white Jewish guy. And I didn't think of it as like I was excluding anyone else, but he liked me. Maybe culturally we felt connected and those things happen down the line. And unless one of those people really wants to have a diverse situation at a comedy club, at a studio, writing opportunities, they, you know, just maybe based on their own comfort levels will just make their world feel like the, their world that it's always been. Yeah, um, totally, 100% agree. And I think that's such the narrative of so many things that happen. There's also, I don't want to lose sight of the counter narrative, which is I do think from the American founding on, from this whole idea of e pluribus unum, out of many come one, is this helping hand that sometimes people give each other. And, you know, my parent, I saw it firsthand with my parents who arrived in a place where nobody looked like them. Um, but they did find some people who took care of them, who, who took them under their wing and, and, made, um, and made it possible for them to thrive. And so, um, you know, there, we do have these two different traditions. And over the last four years, I think we've seen so much of that first ugly tradition. And I'm optimistic um, that both from leadership on high in government, and people in Hollywood, other things that we can see a little more of the latter. Well, you just don't want people, you know, storming the Capitol to prevent all that from happening. You know, when I was a kid, I would see Jerry Seinfeld on TV. I felt represented on television. And I'm like, I'm kind of like that guy. I could be in comedy. And for so many people, they never saw themselves I on have, television. You know, I just been thinking about this because honestly, you know, because I don't do anything really in the TV world. Um, so I don't really think about it much, but I did just see Mindy Kaling's, um, you know, show Never Have I Ever. And, um, it was the first time I was like, man, I feel seen on TV, even though it's about an Indian woman. But I was like, had this been around when I was 15 or 20, who knows? Like, yeah. and, um, you know, even someone like me, who's like skeptical about a lot of things and, you know, kind of, you know, a nonfiction person, I was like, it blew me away. So I think what you're saying is incredibly, incredibly important because, what, what you all do and depict often does define the people's reality um, and, uh, and what they think is possible. Well, we want people that want everyone else's lives to get better. And that's what I think is most disturbing about the Wait, Did I just mess up? Are you, were you involved in that show? I was not. Oh, okay. uh, right. I did the big sick. <laughs> I know that. I know. That's but Camille awesome. Nanjiani talked a lot about never seeing himself on television. Yeah. And uh, and at the time, I, I was just a fan of his. I didn't really think about it in those terms in the beginning. And the more I worked on the project, the more I realized, oh, uh, 
this is not something that's out there in any way. And it has a lot of value and it inspires people just like my daughters would see Lena Dunham on girls. And it, it made them think, Oh, I can be a writer and a director. I can do this. She's a, she's, she's the producer, director, writer, star. I guess that that's possible. And that's what makes me sad when people are so racist and want to storm the Capitol. Not all of them for racist reasons, certainly a fair amount of them uh, because, you know, the best of our, you know, of our human race should be lifting other people up. Uh, and I think in this pandemic, you know, we've seen the same thing where uh, we haven't seen the best of us in terms of I want to wear a mask because I want everyone else to be healthy. You know, it's the ultimate test, right? If, if you don't want to wear a mask, you've just revealed yourself as someone that has no concern for other people. You're only thinking about your comfort. It's a pain in the ass to everybody. So then, Chad, why is Rand Paul not ever wearing a mask? Shocking. (laughs) It's just shocking. Um, I wonder, you know, in this post-Trump moment, uh, what we've learned about what was not functioning in the government and what we now need to change. For instance, uh, you know, for many years we saw that, that there was no ability to bring people in front of congressional committees to just answer questions and be held accountable for their actions or their departments. Like, oh, I, you can just say no. There were so many things we realized aren't laws. They're just things we kind of agreed to that people are saying, yeah, now then I'm not going to do it now. What needs to be changed so that government works better? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our government works has worked historically because of good faith by the people. Um, who were in it. And, you know, um, James Madison said this in the Federalist Paper 51. He's like, yeah, you can try and write laws to prevent government abuse, but they're what he called mere parchment barriers. They're it's just paper. It's not going to suffice if you've got something willful. And he, his solution, which is, you know, the Constitution solution, is to divide power both vertically and horizontally, separation of powers and federalism. But he didn't really anticipate, the founders didn't anticipate the kind of way in which party politics could scramble it. Uh, And if those other branches are just voting on politics and to protect their guy, then you don't really have a system of checks and balances. And up until Trump, we had this kind of tenuous, um, but largely functioning way of accommodation in which it worked, um, in which we'd squeak by, you'd never have too much, uh, in general, too much of a threat. You know, obviously there were, there were mistakes, huge mistakes, Japanese American internment, you'd even consider slavery in a sense, even though it was part of the original design, the hugest mistake ever. Um, but still you had some checks and balances in the government. What happened, over the last four years is basically just people voting politics. And as you say, like, you know, nobody coming before committees, um, no indictments of people, massive giveaways, some of which look really corrupt and possibly illegal with no investigations and the like. And the hard thing I think for Biden now is going to be, you know, the shoes on the other foot a little bit. He's obviously no Trump. He's not some anti-constitutional monster, but all things being equal, if you can get away with less government constraint on you to do what you want, you're going to want it. So, you know, it's going to be a persuasion challenge to convince 
the White House, yeah, you got to go and, you know, send witnesses up. You've got to go answer all of their questions. You've got to get fulsome explanations for what you're doing. You've got to be ba- admit that you're bound by the laws of the United States. Um, you know, be, Trump read every law and he read the Constitution like the tax code, like looking for a loophole here or a loophole, loophole there. And what we have to do is make sure that the new administration doesn't just do the same thing back. Because the temptation will be to do it, particularly because there's all sorts of crazy, horrible stuff Trump has done. And to undo it is legally hard, too. So there's going to be a tendency to want to try and use executive power in really strong ways in order to reverse things and not go the slower way of legislation. Um, But I think that's going to be the big challenge is to, you know, uh, you know, I think Biden understands that he's in a historic presidency. It's not just about winning any individual policy on any given day. It's about kind of writing America again. And part of that involves being admitting that you're subject to some restraints. Yeah. And what you know, there, there, there are so many cases that uh, the Trump administration, you know, took uh, a strong stance on that were really awful, you know, cases with asylum and immigration and and trans rights and on and on and on. Uh, and now Biden, we hope, you know, changes the, the government's positions. But which cases do you have your eyes on? Which one are you concerned about? Yeah. So the, the one that I'm happiest about, we've seen the decision already, is the Affordable Care Act. So the Trump administration went into the Supreme Court And your job, if you're a Trump, if you're the Justice Department, your job is to defend laws of the United States against a constitutional challenge. That's literally the job description. And the Trump lawyers went in and attacked those laws as unconstitutional because they were written by Obama. And under crazy, uh, an insane legal theory in which they tried to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. So Um, Fortunately, the Biden administration has changed that. The case has already been argued to the Supreme Court by the Trump lawyers, but they did write a letter saying this is no longer our position uh, of the United States government. So I think that's really good. And I think they're starting to change in other areas. Trans rights is a good one, you know, affirmative action, things like that. Some take longer. Like I'm actually arguing a case in the Supreme Court in a couple of days on whether or not, um, you know, the rights uh, that uh, refugees and asylum seekers have. And that's one in which uh, the Biden administration didn't change the Trump administration's uh, position, um, really. And so, you know, one of the things about government is it moves slowly and decisions have a long tail. And so it's sometimes really hard to get the ship righted again. Um, And, uh, you know, so I think we're going to unfortunately see a bunch of those in which you'll read headlines like Biden administration defends X or Y. And you're like, what? And in part, it's because they haven't been able to get all of the different boxes checked in order to do things a different way. And sometimes that, as we were talking about a moment ago, is actually a good thing because they didn't take the shortcut. They didn't just, you know, bypass all the procedural rules and just do it. They did it the right way. And sometimes the right way takes some time. Well, my last question I have to ask is, what do you think uh, Donald Trump will be, uh, you know, 
what will be possible in terms of in, in, in civil court and in criminal court in terms of his responsibility uh, with the riots, with other things? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of cases, potentially financial cases. The Stormy Daniels case, uh, I mean, Michael Cohen went to jail for the thing he was told to do by Donald Trump. We know that he lied about the valuations of all of his properties. There's a lot of clear fraud that's just in the paperwork there. But, you know, if you were someone who, uh, who had a family member die during the those riots, could you sue Donald Trump over something yeah. like that? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer, and then I'll expand on it, is that I think Trump is going to go down in, in our history as the not just the worst president to have ever served the United States, but an anti-constitutional monster. And I do think that he is going to face justice. I do not think the book is closed on this because of that second impeachment at all. I think he's gone from a one front war with impeachment to a four front war now. And those four fronts are criminal, the 14th Amendment, the January 6th Commission, and then civil lawsuits. And just to, to walk you through those, as you were saying criminally, there are ongoing investigations, both at the state and local level and at the federal level. Uh, the Georgia prosecutor recently said that she was investigating the call about, you know, I need to find 11,680 votes or whatever the number was, uh, and investigating that, which does seem like a serious problem. Uh, the New York City, the Manhattan District Attorney has just hired Mark Pomerantz, who's like one of the top white collar lawyers as a prosecutor to over the Donald Trump thing. That is not good news for Donald Trump. So that's the first thing. The second is the 14th Amendment. There's a bill that's been introduced, and I think it's going to get a lot more discussion in the next uh, month or two, about whether or not to exclude Donald Trump from any future office holding because he aided and abetted an insurrection. That's what the 14th Amendment allows. Um, it was passed after the Civil War, but it's not wasn't just limited to the Civil War. It can be done by a simple majority, which the House and Senate clearly have, it probably would require some court proceeding. And I think that's great. I think Trump should, I don't think that the House and Senate should just categorically just bar the guy from serving in office. I think they should say, look, here's our view. If you disagree, go to court, prove it up and make Donald Trump tell his story under oath about why he didn't uh, aid an insurrection. Um, the third thing is the January 6th commission, which Speaker Pelosi has uh, set up which or is, is trying to set up, which is gonna do an investigation of what happened. And I suspect we'll have the power to refer criminal cases to the Justice Department, which you know is, is I think your last question to me indicated over the last four years didn't mean anything. You could refer anything to the Justice Department that Donald Trump and his wrong and his minions did, but Bill Barr would have stopped it. But Bill Barr is no longer the Attorney General. So I think there's something there. And then the last thing are these civil lawsuits. We just started to see them with Representative Thompson filing under the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was passed in 1871, um, and bars people from coming together, from conspiring to prevent people from exercising their government role. And that is, of course, pretty much fits January 6th to a T. 
So I think you've got all four of those. And then obviously other people who could sue under that as well, victims, as you were saying, Judd, of the uh, attack on January 6th and the like. And I think basically this kind of metastasizing of investigations and lawsuits is what you see when you don't get a clear and clean victory. And Trump didn't get the clean victory at all out of the impeachment proceedings. So I think all of these are likely. And the last thing I'd say about this is like, I understand how sick we are of Donald Trump and it'd be just so nice to just forget, close the book, turn the page, forget about these four different things, move on. But I do think that it's important to do this um, in part because I think Trump is going to run again because he's got nothing else to do. Um, and I don't think he'll ever win, but um, you know, I don't think he can win an election to be dog catcher, but I think by running, he can create a lot of danger. And so I think we have to use this time to try and block him from the ability to run. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like coronavirus, like, you know, coronavirus is obviously a clear and present danger to our health um, in the way that Trump is a clear and present danger to our Constitution. And just like coronavirus, when the danger feels low and progress is being made, that's the worst time to take your mask off and let up. And similarly here, I feel like you know, yeah, we feel pretty good. We've got like a, a normal person in office, you know, again, regardless of politics, just a guy who's not like going to be setting fire to the Constitution every day. But there is this other guy. And he has, as you just pointed out, 75 million people who voted for him. And, and he has like a quarter of a billion dollars in a in a pack that I guess he's allowed to spend almost any way he wants. Yep, until he's, yeah, until he's brought to justice. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew that you could just start a pack, get $250 million in it? Like if he wants to say, I'm going to pay Ivanka $5 million a year for this and, and Donald Jr. to do this, it's literally legal if the people who send the money and you know, I guess they don't haven't read the small type that he didn't have to spend that money on these elections. He could just keep them for whatever he wanted to use them for. You're totally right. And in fact, like someone signed me up for Donald Trump's mailing list. So I got all the solicitation emails during the whole December big lie. So every day I get the donate, uh, you know, $5, $1,000, whatever to fight the big steal and so on. So I went and looked and clicked on the links and the fine print literally said most of the money, it was about 75%, doesn't go to fighting the steal. It just goes to Trump's pack for him to do with whatever he wanted. Yeah. Um, you know, just astounding to me that he was he basically used the whole thing as a fundraising crutch. Nothing else. No, it's I, I think that, you know, it's clearly the entire thing is a con job. And the, the most shocking thing is the lack of fury by 75 million people that, you know, that they've been grifted. But uh, I appreciate you explaining it to me. I want to thank you for talking to me again, Neil, which I always enjoy. I see you every night on TV, so I feel like we're always talking, but I'm just talking at the TV. You don't respond directly to me. And I'm always happy to do something for 826. I right now I'm finishing up my new book, uh, which is uh, Sick in the Head, where I interview comedians. And we donate a lot of money to 826. Uh, and the reason why I support 826 is I was talking to Dave Eggers, who's one of the founders, and he was telling me about it. And I thought, you know what? Writing and creative writing is uh, what saved me and what has supported me in my life. And there's nothing more important than that. And it's a fantastic charity. And everybody, please uh, support them in any way you can.
This episode was brought to you as part of Second Home's Creative Collisions podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what other events we have coming up. See you next time.